Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. Today we're going to take a break with the format and break with tradition and simply read a discussion section from the scholarly article titled COVID-19 and the Political Economy of Mass Hysteria. I had previously done a reaction segment to this video with a good friend of mine, Bill Barger, which you can see only on YouTube and Odyssey. So if you're a subscriber of the channel, make sure you check out that video as well. Before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe to the channel and the show, and make sure to leave some comments with your opinions on what we're reading today. Make sure to join our production team on Patreon by following the link in the description and share this content with your friends. If you want to read along, the link to this paper is available in the description below. But now we're going to get right into it. Discussion of amplifiers and attenuators of mass hysteria, minimal state versus the welfare state. There are several corrective mechanisms and limits for a mass hysteria. There exists well-known strategies to reduce anxiety, stress, and fear which individuals can employ in a society with a minimal state. Releasing tension from one's body through sports and exercises helps to limit psychological stress. Furthermore, it is essential to find distractions from the negative news and to socialize. Without state restrictions, such distractions abound. Hysteria may cause people to inflict harm on themselves and innocent bystanders. In a society with a minimal state, there exists an essential limit to the destruction resulting from mass hysteria, which is the enforcement of private property rights, which, in theory, is the only task of a minimal state. Most importantly, in such an institutional environment, there does not exist an institution that is powerful enough to massively violate private property rights. Perhaps with the possible exception of the minimal state converting itself to a welfare state. In addition, while anyone in a hysteria related to public health may voluntarily close their own business, wear a mask, or stay home, in a minimal state, no one can use coercion to force others who are healthy and do not succumb to the hysteria to close their business, wear masks, or quarantine. A minority can just ignore the collective panic and can continue to live their normal lives because they are free to do so. Such a minority can be an example and a wake-up call to those that do succumb to the collective hysteria or are close to doing so. This minority may be especially attractive to borderline cases. Suppose that a small group of people during a collective health hysteria continues to go shopping, to work, to socialize, and breathe freely and does not fall ill massively and fatally. Having this example, the anxiety of observers may fall. Observers may follow the example and a group of hysterics shrinks. It is one of the core characteristics of decentralized systems that they allow for competition, error detection, and correction. If the people that ultimately become role models for others through their interaction become ill and die, the panic would be confirmed. However, if there really is a hysteria and the threat is imagined or exaggerated, the fortune of the role models will be on average much better than is expected by those that succumb to the hysteria. A sufficient number and variety of role models allows observers to correct and adjust their expectations. Thus, there exist important limits for mass hysteria to harm life and liberty in a minimal state. Moreover, Natural mechanisms that reduce stress, anxiety, and hysteria can operate freely. Decentralized competition for solutions alleviates pressure to conform and facilitate breaking out of hysteria. 
competition allows discovering information about the real danger of the perceived threat. While the havoc inflicted by collective hysteria is limited by the protection of private property rights in a private law society or a minimal state, such limits can easily be overcome by a modern welfare state. In fact, a well-organized group that has been infected by collective hysteria may be in charge of the state or get control of the state apparatus. In such a position, this group can impose measures on the rest of the population, inflicting almost unrestricted harm. It must be taken into account here that a welfare state can also be a state which is bound by the rule of law, and in which repressive interventions by the executive can be lifted by the judiciary. However, there exists a danger that in a collective panic, the protection of basic liberties guaranteed in constitutions will be abrogated by emergency measures, and the judiciary will succumb to the mass hysteria, failing to lift the repressive interventions. The empirical evidence during the COVID-19 crisis demonstrates that basic liberties were not defended in welfare states. In general, the greater the coercive power of the state, the more harm can be inflicted on society in a mass hysteria. It could be argued that infection with a virus would constitute a negative technological external effect. However, the only task of a minimal state is to protect private property rights. It is not the task of minimal state to protect its citizens against all risks of life, such as getting a cold or the seasonal flu. In a minimal state, citizens are free to decide which risks they want to assume, be they driving a car, doing bungee jumping, or engaging in social interaction. Indeed, the state's attempts to reduce infection rates in the form of mandatory face masks, the shutdown of businesses, or shelter-in-place orders does violate the private property rights that the minimal state is supposed to defend and may produce negative externalities in the forms of depressions, alcoholism, or suicides. While in a private law society and in a minimal state, there are mechanisms that help to limit and reduce mass panics, collective hysteria may be exacerbated by a powerful welfare state for several reasons. First, the state has the power to diminish and prohibit those activities that do reduce fear and anxiety, such as sports, diversion, and socializing. During the COVID-19 crisis, states used their coercive power to impose social isolation, thereby contributing to anxiety and psychological strain, both ingredients that spur mass hysteria. In order to shield against biopsychological infections, the population should exercise regularly, have quality sleep, have a balanced nutrition, and maintain strong connection with other people. Governments around the world mandated lockdowns and masks during the COVID-19 crisis, making it more difficult for citizens to do any of these things. More specifically, social distancing imposed by governments reduces strong social connections, and mandatory masks prevent expressing friendliness and compassion, thereby decreasing psychological resilience. Second, the state, by its very nature, takes a centralized approach to solving problems. It is true that a welfare state is not necessarily a completely centralized state. The USA and the Federal Republic of Germany, both of which are welfare states, have substantial federal structures, and these federal structures can lead to competition in regulations and in dealing with the source of mass hysteria, which leads to better solutions. Moreover, 
The existence of competing states on the international level allows experimenting with different solutions. During the COVID-19 crisis, for instance, the approach of Sweden provided evidence of the results of alternative approaches. Generally speaking, the more decentralized the political structure, the more intense the possible competition. In any case, the state, by its very nature, deals with the source of a hysteria such as the perceived threat of a deadly virus in a centralized way. The state is a monopolist of coercion in a given territory. As the state imposes solutions to the problem, there is no or only very limited experimentation of alternative ways to solve the problem. People that oppose the state's approach to the problem because they have not succumbed to the hysteria are suppressed. <coughs> they cannot demonstrate alternative ways to solve the crisis, as these alternative ways are prohibited by the state. When alternatives are ruled out, groupthink increases. Groupthink is a psychological force that fosters consensus, suppressing dissent, and the evaluation of alternatives to the collective narrative. Groupthink has been considered responsible for political fiascos such as the Vietnam War or the Watergate cover-up by Irving Janus. Lockdowns during the COVID-19 crisis may be another fiasco candidate as their effectiveness is disputed. Group pressure can modify and distort judgments as been, has been shown by the ASH experiments. The human inclination toward conformity aids hysteria spread. Indeed, groupthink helps to explain the phenomenon of mass hysteria. Mass hysteria can be considered a form of groupthink. Due to group pressure and groupthink, hysteria feeds itself as no alternatives are shown to people. The information necessary to address the problem cannot be generated in a decentralized way in the market, which is a problem inherent in socialism. Third, in a modern welfare state, the media may be politicized. This politicization restricts the existing competition between the media. There are several mechanisms that channel and even restrict media competition. News outlets and social media platforms may develop close relationships with the state. The state regulates media, and it may also own media outlets directly, such as public TV or radio channels. The state typically also requires licenses for certain media to operate. In general, new outlets and platforms may look for the goodwill of state agencies. Moreover, uh, government officials are often used as a source of news, leading to a statist bias. While objectivity would require presenting both sides of a story in times of crisis, politicians rarely present both sides of the stories. Another form of indirect state influence in the media is that they are staffed with people who are educated in state or state-licensed schools, reinforcing statist bias in media. News agencies and social media platforms connected with the state may engage in and promote massive negative news campaigns. Negative news sells. The media have the incentive to portray danger. The story of a government as a hero who provides a resolution to threats is incredibly marketable. In fact, mass media spread panic by presenting SARS-CoV-2 as an unprecedented threat. Information seeking on the internet was associated with more symptoms during the COVID-19 crisis. Being reminded and made aware of one's own mortality constantly produced anxiety. 
emotional pictures of coffins, mass graves, and patients on ventilators contributed to the collective fear. An excess of COVID-19 news generated anxiety and panic, also called headline stress disorder. Negative social media news generates psychological stress that was unknown in former times and is well suited to cause mass hysteria. Social media consumption correlates with anxiety and psychological distress. Excessive discussion on the COVID-19 on social media deteriorated psychic health. The news coverage of COVID-19 was almost completely negative. News on the increasing COVID-19 cases outnumbered stories of declining cases by a factor of 5.5 even in times of falling cases. News agencies may actually intentionally scare people and suppress alternative information. In short, mass hysteria sponsored by a biased media sector may run out of control in a modern welfare state. Fourth, negative news from an authoritative source produces anxiety and it's particularly harmful for psychological health. Experts that endorse the credibility of a threat increase the spread of mass hysteria. Many people, especially in times of crisis, look for help from the modern state. They attach great authority to the representatives of the state and speak to the warnings of the state institutions. When doctors such as Anthony Fauci speak in the name of the state, telling people what they face a terrible threat and have to wear masks and stay at home, it becomes easier for a collective hysteria to develop than would be the case in a more decentralized society where no such powerful central authority exists. Indeed, Dr. Fauci exaggerated the dangers of COVID-19, delivering a message of panic to the public. In a U.S. congressional hearing on 11 March 2020, the mortality rate of the coronavirus was exaggerated. Information bias and selection bias led to the estimation that the mortality rate of the coronavirus would be 10 times higher than the mortality rate of the seasonal influenza. There was a confusion of the case fatality rate, which is the proportion of deaths amongst confirmed cases of a disease, and the infection fatality rate, which is the proportion of deaths relative to the prevalence of infection within a given population. Estimations of infection fatality rates are based on blood tests. Estimations of infections include undiagnosed, asymptomatic, and mild infections. The infection fatality rate is normally much lower than the case fatality rate. In the congressional hearing on 11 March 2020, the infection fatality rate of the seasonal influenza was compared to the estimated case fatality rate of the coronavirus, leading to the alarming statement that the coronavirus would be 10 times more deadly than the seasonal influenza. This false statement coming out of Congress and with its authority greatly contributed to generate anxiety and panic. Another factor that may make modern societies more receptible to mass hysterias is that the role of religion in society has been reduced. The fear of death is usually alleviated by religion because religions typically consider that there is a life after death. The state and democracy have been elevated to a quasi-religious level. The state appears as an alternative to God, 
without the promise of an afterlife. When turning away from religion, people start to fear death more. And a strong fear of death is another factor that contributes to panic, disorders, and mass hysteria. As Eric von Kuhnert-Lieden has put it, it is difficult to fear death if one is very pious. It is difficult not to worship health if one fears death. It is difficult to enforce general health without large-scale state intervention, and it is equally difficult to imagine an increased state intervention without a loss of liberties. This does not mean that a strong state never rely on religion. The authoritarian regimes of the interwar period, such as Austria, Poland, Franco-Spain, all relied on religion and had characteristics of welfare states. However, empirical research found that in countries with higher welfare spending, people are less religious, suggesting that individuals substitute religious services for state services. Religious beliefs, however, have been shown to increase psychological well-being. Without a spiritual framework provided by religion and a belief in an afterlife, there is a tendency for fear of death to increase and for the population to become more responsive to psychological problems and mass hysteria. Fifth, the state may actively want to instill fear in the population, thereby contributing to the making of mass hysteria. Illustrating this point is the leakage of an internal paper of the German Department of Interior during the first weeks of the COVID-19 crisis. In the paper, the state experts recommend that the government should instill fear in the German population. In order to spread fear, the paper endorsed three communications strategies. First, the state authorities should stress the breathing problems of COVID-19 patients because human beings have a primordial fear of death by suffocation, which can easily trigger panic. Second, the experts emphasize that the fear should also be instilled in children, even though there is next to no risk to children's own health. However, children could get easily infected by meeting and playing with other children. According to the report, children should be told that when they infect their parents and grandparents, in turn, they could suffer a distressful death at home. This communication advice, intended to invoke anxiety and feelings of guilt. Instilling guilt is another measure used by governments to make the population more supportive. The recommended message instills fear of being responsible for infecting others who die a distressful death. Third, the German government was advised to mention the possibility of unknown, long-term, irreversible health damage caused by SARS-CoV-2 infection and the possibility of a sudden and unexpected death of people who were infected. All these communication recommendations were intended to increase fear in the population. Fear, at the end, is an important foundation of a government's power. As Henry H. Mencken put it, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed, and hence clamorous to be led to safety, by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. The overreaction of government to a perceived threat then fosters anxiety. It lies in the interests of a government to emphasize citizens' vulnerability to external and internal threats because the state's legitimacy and power rest on the narrative that it protects its citizens against such dangers. While the threat strategy is generally beneficial to government, fear is a double-edged sword. Fear can also turn people against the state. Panic and mass hysteria 
can even lead to a total destabilization of a regime. Anecdotal evidence of this is the Grand Pier during the French Revolution, when rumors of aristocrats planning to starve the population led to general panic and uprisings against the regime. Fear and anxiety have been an important factor in human evolution and have an important function. However, the evolutionary functions of fear can be manipulated to secure dominion and control. Fear gives power over the fearful. The relationship between politics and fear has been widely studied. The ancient Greek historian Polybius claimed that in order to control the masses, rulers had to instill fear and work with horror images. The Roman writer Sallust pointed out that those who want to exercise power have to decide between generating fear or suffering from fear. In recent times, the war against terror has been evoked by some authors as an example of reinforcing excessive fears in the population in order to increase the government's power. Brzezinski points out constant reference to a war on terror did accomplish one major objective. It stimulated the emergence of a culture of fear. Fear obscures reason, intensifies emotions, and makes it easier for a demagogic politician to mobilize the public on behalf of the policies they want to pursue. A culture of fear results from governments instilling fear in the general public to achieve its political goals, exploiting the negativity bias of the human brain. Typically, governments are helped with their threat narrative by the media. As Robert Higgs points out, the news media buy insurance against government retribution by playing along with whatever program of fear-mongering the government is conducting currently. Sensationalist media also support the government's fear strategy because they allow it to get the public's attention. This combination of a state willing to use the fear strategy with support of mass media provides fertile grounds for mass hysteria to develop with a negative effect on public health. Six, politicians have an incentive to overshoot the mark in their responses to a threat. This is because politicians are largely exempt from the risk of possible wrong decisions and their costs. Political decision makers can largely pass on the costs of their actions to others. Additionally, the larger and more centralized the state is, the better and more extensively the costs can be passed on to others. Self-interested politicians face an asymmetric payoff. Underestimating a threat and failing to act has great political costs, as politicians will be held responsible for the disaster caused by the threat they underestimated. By contrast, an exaggeration or even invention of a threat and bold state intervention are politically more attractive. If the existential threat claimed by politicians really turns out to be such a great danger, they can be claimed by poli- uh, they can be celebrated as heroes if they enacted bold measures. If the cost of these measures ultimately turn out to be excessive compared to the actual danger, then the politicians do not have to bear the costs of the wrong decision, but can pass it on to the rest of the population. Politicians enjoying a guaranteed income, therefore, have an incentive to exaggerate a danger and to impose exaggerated measures, also called policy over reaction, which is conducive to the emergence and growth of mass hysteria.
in some property rights tend not to be effective limits in curbing mass hysteria in a welfare state. Moreover, the state may inhibit the natural mechanisms that reduce stress and hysteria. The centralized nature of the state increases group and conformity pressures. Politicized mass media and negative messages from official state agencies can further increase psychological pressure. Finally, the state may intentionally want to increase anxiety, and politicians have incentive to make bold decisions and exaggerate the threat. Mass hysteria can have enormous public health costs in terms of psychological stress, anxiety, and even physical symptoms. To these costs must be added indirect adverse health effects from alcoholism, suicides, or damage from deferred treatment and delayed recognition of illness. Policy failures in mass hysteria can lead to the economic decline in poverty, which in turn negatively impacts public health and life expectancy. Studies of mass hysteria have mostly focused on outbreaks in localized settings of schools and businesses. However, in the digital age of global mass and social media, the possibility of a global mass hysteria exists, a phenomenon that has not yet been studied. Our study of the political economy of mass hysteria draws on the well-established psychological phenomenon of mass hysteria and applies it to new and innovative context of global mass hysteria, for which no literature yet exists. More specifically, we analyzed how the political system can influence the likelihood and spread of mass hysteria in a digitized and globalized world based on economic principles. We discussed how the state and its size increased the likelihood of mass hysteria by comparing an idealized minimal state with an idealized welfare state, addressing a previously completely unexplored research question. Our findings are highly relevant and important because the policy failures induced by mass hysteria are potentially catastrophic for public health. We found that the size and power of the state contributes positively to the likelihood and extensions of mass hysteria. The more centralized and the more power a state has, the higher the probability and extension of mass hysteria. In a minimal state, there exists self-correcting mechanisms that limit collective hysteria. The enforcement of private property rights limits the harm inflicted by those that succumb to the hysteria. The state, thanks to a fuzzy public sector and its soft power, by contrast amplifies and exacerbates mass panics, potentially causing important havoc. What are temporarily located, limited, locally limited, isolated outbreaks of mass hysteria, the state may convert into a global mass hysteria for an extended period of time. Recent development in information technology and particularly the use of social media, as well as a decline of religion, have made societies more prone to the development of mass hysteria. Unfortunately, once a mass hysteria takes hold of the government, the amount of damage the hysteria can inflict to life and liberty surges as the state res state's respect for private property and basic human rights is limited. The violation of basic human rights in the form of curfews, lockdowns, and coercive closures of businesses has been amply illustrated during the COVID-19 crisis. Naturally, the COVID-19 example is indicative rather than representative, and its lessons cannot be generalized. During the COVID-19 crisis, several authors have argued that from a public health point of view, these invasive interventions, such as lockdowns, have been unnecessary, and that indeed detrimental to the overall public health.
In fact, prior scientific research on disease mitigation measures during a possible influenza pandemic had warned against such invasive interventions and recommended a more normal social functioning. Moreover, in reaction to past pandemics, such as the Asian flu of 1957 to 1958, there were no lockdowns. And research before 2020 had opposed lockdowns. From this perspective, the lockdowns have been a policy error. We've shown that these policy errors may well have been produced by a collective hysteria. To which extent there has been a mass hysteria during the COVID-19 crisis is open for future research. In order to prevent the repetition of policy errors similar to those during the COVID-19 crisis, one should be aware of the political economy of mass hysteria developed in this article and the role of the state in fostering mass hysteria. Public health is likely to be affected negatively by state interventions during a mass hysteria due to policy error. Thank you for listening along, everybody. It's a fascinating read. A fascinating, fascinating read. Again, check the link in the description. Read along for yourself. Read the rest of the article yourself. And make sure you leave some comments in the description. And let us know, let me know what you think about it. What are your opinions? Were they on the ball? Did they get anything wrong? I don't know. And the only way we will is if you point it out. Until next time, everybody, be free.